Okay, uh, we will get started. We're going to continue with our, there's more to the story. Um, we have recently been in the feasts, the seven uh, feasts that um, is mentioned in the Old Testament, the Jewish feast, and we have covered uh, Passover, we've covered the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we've covered the Feast of First Fruits. We've covered uh, Pentecost, and then last week we started with the Feast of Trumpets. And tonight we are going to go with the next one in the series, uh, just sequentially, um, that would fall 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets. It would be the Day of Atonement. And uh, this is one of my favorites. We, we've actually mentioned this before in, um, in sermons, so some of this may not be um, new to you, and I hope it's not new to you, uh, but it is um, quite the type and shadow, and we know that all the, the things in the Old Testament, all these feasts and people and, and different things, they're pointing to Christ. They're shadows pointing to the reality, uh, the substance in Christ. That's what the Old Testament does. And um, one of the proof texts that we've kind of been starting with each time we've done this is found in Colossians chapter 2 and um, verse 16 and 17. I'll read that really quickly. Uh, it says this, it says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We've read that every time. That's, uh, w w there's many texts in the Bible. Jesus himself tells us that the Old Testament was speaking of him. Moses spoke about him. The prophets spoke about him. On the road to Emmaus, he, he enlightens and um, speaks to those two individuals and tells them and gives them the greatest sermon of types and shadows there ever was. He explains that to his disciples uh, on the night of his resurrection as well. Um, and hopefully you can see that uh, David and Moses and Jonah and not that guy, I always do that. I can't leave it. Every time I do that, I have to do that. But the ark, all, all the temple, everything um, that in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ here. And the Day of Atonement is no different. And this is my favorite in, in all the feasts that were to, to be required, to be observed. This was the most solemn. This was the one that um, had the heaviest weight on it. This was the festival or the feast that uh, they were required not to eat. They were to fast. It was a day where they would come and th those who um, would draw near, uh, they would find it be a day of in humility and humbling themselves in repentance. It was quite the day. And of all the feasts, this one, um, in my opinion, is my favorite because it's pointing to the work of Christ. So with that being said, I want to do something that I know probably doesn't uh, probably get done a lot, um, but I want to read the whole chapter. What's wrong with reading the whole chapter? Can we do that? C could we read it in context and actually do that? Let's, let's start to do that just so you can get a feel of what's going on. And, and uh, this was on the seventh or the tenth day of the seventh month. Um, it was ten days after the Feast of Trumpets, and this day includes the offering of various sacrifices. Um, and then eventually the entrance of the Holy of Holies by the high priest. And uh, we're going to dive into this, but let's start in Leviticus chapter 16 in verse 1. And here's what it says. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. 
The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron, they shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with a linen sash and attire with a linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself, for his household, and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil." He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, the, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And in the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, and because of their transgression in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it, and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of, all of, excuse me, of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hands of a man who stands in readiness." The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. Just a little heads up, uh, that will possibly be one of the best verses of all the night. Just keep that in your mind, won't it, Carlene? <laughs> 
and says this, He shall bathe in his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the, for the people. Then he shall offer up the smoke, uh, up in smoke, the fat of the sin offering and on the altar. The one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his water, bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes, clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. This shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. That's going to come back to be a part of you too, the sojourner there and the alien. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls and it is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as the priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priest and for the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. There's a lot in that chapter, isn't there? Let me give you the cliff notes, and if you want to check out, let me tell you what, it's gonna, what this is pointing to, the cross of Christ. There, there's, your, there's your easiest interpretation of it, but once you see the details of this chapter, you'll never be able to look at it the same, because when we see this, and, and so often we stop ourselves in the Old Testament, don't we? And hopefully not as much now as we begin to understand how that the, the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. It's, it's the shadow, but it's not the substance. It's the, the, the things that are pointing to the truth that is coming into Christ. And, and I, I don't know if anybody's ever done a read through the Bible program. But if you're awfully honest with yourself, you probably make it through Genesis. That's kind of fun. There's some stuff you know there. And then Exodus, yeah, you love to hear all the, all the stuff going on with Moses there. But then you come to Leviticus, and many of souls have died in, the, in, the, in Leviticus. Many of good intentions have died in Leviticus. Anybody agree with this? Because we don't understand how it's pointing to Christ. To understand the weight and the depth of what Christ did in your redemption, you have to understand the book of Leviticus. And if you want to just, I, I, just give me one chapter in the book of Leviticus to know, then go to 16. And here's the truth. If you don't truly understand Leviticus, then the book of Hebrews is not going to make any sense to you. Because the book of Hebrews is looking back and it's saying, listen, those things that you used to do, those sacrifices, the old priesthood, uh, the old sacrifices, all those things, they were not the substance. Don't go back. It's an apologetic book. It's saying, listen, don't go back. And you have to know the book of Leviticus to truly understand the book of Hebrews. So tonight, I just want us to see the beauty of Leviticus, and specifically Leviticus 16, because without it, you'll never truly understand your salvation. So with that being said, let's pray. 
Father, help us tonight. Lord, as we stop to think about what you have done for us, Lord, what you could only do, we could never save ourselves. We could never atone for sins. Lord, we're dependent on you. And, and Lord, forgive us for so often we just don't truly grasp at what you've done. And the beauty of your word, Lord, we're sorry. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes tonight to see the beautifulness, the glory of your word, the power of your word in the work of our true high priest. Lord, help me tonight. There's so much depth here, and I, I just pray that you would help me. Lord, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll start, I'm going to start working through chapter 16. I wanted to read it to get it into context. And if you just read it and, 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 you, and we don't start to glean out the, the, the information here and all these types and shadows pointing to Christ, then we miss so much because what you've just heard is one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. And, and chapter 16 starts off with this, uh, this mention of the death of Aaron's two sons, Nadab, in Abihu. And if you remember, that goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 10. And we have talked about this so much in, in our recent sermons, and it's of importance because in Leviticus chapter 10, just to briefly kind of catch everybody up, that Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron, and they decided that they were going to go into the, the place of God. They were going to go into the tabernacle, and they were going to bring unauthorized fire and sacrifice um, before the Lord. However, they were not commanded to do it then. It was not authorized by God. And because God is a holy God and what brings a, a lot of confusion to a lot of people and the that's not fair meter starts to rise up pretty high is that with this one sin, both the sons are dropped dead. And we said, that's not fair. That's just one sin. How could he do that? Well, if we think that it's just one sin and how could he do that? I will tell you very quickly, we don't know who God is. And God is holy and God is just. And one sin, they got exactly what they deserved. And if you remember that story that, that Aaron is seen as two sons laying dead, what would you say? I always ask this. What would you say if you saw your two children just laying there on the ground for one act of disobedience to God? Before Aaron could say anything, Moses comes to him. And I'll tell you what Moses said. In Leviticus 10, you see this. It says, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. And here's everything you need to know. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. What could you say? See, that's the response of all humanity before the sovereign God. It says that in our own sinful nature, trying to earn it by the law, we're all condemned and our mouths are held closed before this holy God. In the parable of the, ten, uh, uh, the, the wedding feast in Matthew, I believe it's 22, when he, they say, hey, what are you doing here? And they're getting ready to take him. And that, that parable is that they're going to take him to the lake of fire. And it says he doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't have a response because you won't and you can't. Aaron has just saw his two sons die. And it says, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place, into the veil. Because if he does that, when I tell him he can't, or if it's not the appointed time of year, 
he's going to die too. Because God is holy. He's a holy God. And how dare we think we can enter his presence in this manner. Can you imagine that? He tells Aaron, you do it just like they did it, you're going to die too. That's what he tells him on Mount Sinai. You remember that? He says, listen, in Exodus 19, if all you think you can come on this mountain, you're going to die. You can't do it. There has to be certain parameters set up before you can enter into this holy place. And, and this is what would happen. And what makes this feast unique is this, is that in all the other feasts, the priests would have some duties to do. But in this feast, it was a one-man job. And it wasn't just any priest. It was the work of the high priest. He's the only one that could do it. It was just the high priest who was going to work on this day. And it would be once a year for sacrifice. And it would be with great reverence and awe that he would be allowed to go into this place. So he just sees his two sons die, and now he's getting ready to go into the presence of the Lord. But he couldn't go in just as he was. He had to also make atonement for his sins. He had to, to sacrifice a bull and take some of the blood and sprinkle it there as well to atone for his sin because... Yes, he's pointing to Christ, who's going to be the true high priest, but there's a huge difference between Aaron and Christ. Christ was sinless. He didn't have to make atonement for his sins. He came to make atonement for the sins of his people. But Aaron and all high priests, they would have to make a sacrifice for their own sin offering. Here's what it says in verse 4. This is where the story starts to become really amazing. I want you to catch this. It says, he shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. If you remember in, I believe it is in Exodus chapter 28, you can go back and read that someday uh, just for the detail of the priestly garments and what they would entail. But I think what we need to see is at the very first few verses, the first three verses of Exodus 28, and it says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the tribes of Israel, to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, Ubayu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And he says, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. And here's the purpose, for glory and for beauty. And it says, you shall speak to all the skillful persons who have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, and they will make Aaron's garment to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. And then you go and you read the rest of that chapter. They've got stones, and it's colorful, and it is made for glory and for beauty. And this is the, this is the garment that the, the high priest would wear. All, he would wear it at various times, and this would be his normal attire for most of the things that he would do in this high priestly role, except for one day, the wardrobe would change. This is everything. He, he doesn't have the, the priestly high garments there of stone and jewels and color and glory and beauty. Those things he's taken off. And now he's just robed right here is what he says, a holy linen tunic, a linen undergarment. Now he's got this white linen undergarment. He's taken off all of the, 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 the glory and the beauty and, and all the show that there is with that high priestly wardrobe. He's taken it off. He's laid it aside for this day. 
What is this pointing to? We say, what's the point of that? Well, I believe the answer can be found in Philippians chapter 2. Because the King of all glory, the God who's created the world, the God of all Asiti, who has life in Himself, when the fullness of time came, what did He do? He humbled Himself. And you know what He took on? Do you know what He took on? form of a man. Is there anything more humbling that the Son of God could ever put on than the form of a man? Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16 and 11, through 11. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the king of glory in heaven with all his glory and all his majesty and all his power and all of his beauty, that when the fullness of time come, he would humble himself, he would empty himself, and he would come in the hypostatic union and wrap himself in flesh. You see, he's laying aside the glory of heaven. He's laying that aside to come on and take on the form of a man. Yes, fully God. And yes, fully man. Never losing his deity. But do you see the picture that's going on? He didn't come in all of his glory. And we, we see times where on Mount Transfiguration, we see the, it's unveiled a little bit and you see his glory. But he's taken that all off. And he's humbled himself to come for the mission of atonement. And we see this in the, the garments of the high priest on this day. He took off the jewels. He took off the stones. He took off all the color and just wore this humble, modest, white garment. The white is for the purity. The linen garment is for the humility of it. He's laid it all aside to come and do his work. Keep that in mind. He's laid it down. He's humbled himself. To be obedient to the point of death, that's important. It says, He shall take from the congregation, in verse 5, of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram, one ram for a burnt offering. What's interesting here is this, that yes, Christ would die for sins, but they wouldn't be His sins, would they? Look where these goats come from. The sins of the congregation of Israel. You see, he's taking from them the sin offering because he doesn't have sin in himself. Christ doesn't. So this is a symbolic saying, listen, I don't, I don't have sin in myself. So the sin offering that I'm going to atone for is not mine, it's yours. And he takes it from the congregation of Israel, sons of Israel. One of them is a bull offering which he will make atonement for himself. And then he'll have two goats that are there. And we won't spend a lot of time on what Aaron has to do in this case and what the high priest would do with these with the, the, the bull. Like I said, he would, he would kill the bull. There would be a sacrifice of the bull. The blood would go in. He would sprinkle it um, as a sin offering for himself. But we want to spend the time talking about the two goats because the two goats tell us a story of the cross as well. Uh, what you see in the two goats here is the two things that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. When we look at the cross itself and the shape of the cross, we have the vertical beam 
and we have the horizontal beam. And these two goats, one is representing the vertical beam and one's representing the horizontal beam. So even in the shape of the cross, we see the, the representation of these two goats come into the process here. Let's talk about these two goats. And if you see on your paper, I've, I've kind of boldened it. I've kind of made it a little bit bigger for the fonts. And you can see on the front page, you'll see the word propitiation. And if you flip on the back, you'll see the word expiation. These are words that have to come into our vocabulary. We have to know these words. We have to know the meaning of them. They have to be of utmost importance to us because this is what these two goats are going to represent. The one goat is the propitiation, and one is the scapegoat. Let's talk about the propitiation first. The first goat was for the propitiation of the sins of the people. That word propitiation refers to an appeasing or satisfying of wrath or an atonement. It is where the, where the wrath and the justice is being poured out. It is, there's a blood sacrifice here. There's an appeasing of the wrath. There's an atonement for sin. There is blood that is shed to make this appeasement, to make this satisfaction for the sin of the people, there has to be a blood sacrifice. And the first goat will be sacrificed. And the blood will be used as a propitiation for the sins of the people. Because the Bible is very clear that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no atonement for sin. If there's no blood, there's no purchasing. If there's no blood, there's no redeeming. If there's no redeeming, there's no buying back. If there's no buying back, then we have no hope of heaven. If you remember that we as believers, we are not redeemed by silly things, like cheap things, like silver and gold. That's not what we're redeemed by. I've said it every time. You can take all the gold in the world that's ever been created. You could take all the billions and billions of dollars of silver and gold and diamonds and pearls. You could bring them all together and you could buy pretty much anything you wanted to in this world, except for one thing. You can never buy a soul. You couldn't do it. And the cost of a soul is too valuable. And it was only obtained by the precious blood of God. You see, why, that's why this first goat is of so much importance. It is going to be this goat that is going to die. It is going to be this goat whose blood is going to be taken. And it is going to be the blood of this goat that will appease the wrath of God. It is going to be this goat that is going to satisfy uh, for the sins of the people. It is going to be this goat's blood who's going to atone for the sins of the people so there could be forgiveness. And here's how this would go. We've heard it. We've mentioned it before. But I want you to get this picture. That this innocent goat, this goat had done nothing to these people, just a goat. And they would take this goat and they would kill this goat. They would sacrifice this goat. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the sight of that? To take this live animal and just kill it? The cries, the screams, the blood. Can you imagine this scene that day? This is the day that, this is the holy day of the people of Israel. This is, this is their most solemn day, and they're witnessing goats being killed. How could that be? Because without the blood, there's no forgiveness, and there's no atonement, and there's no propitiation. And picture this sight, that this goat would be killed. 
And they would take the blood. He would take the blood and the high priest, and only the high priest would go into the holy place and he would see the table of bread there and he would see the, the, the altar of incense. He would see the, the, the candle lamp there, the lamps, the candles. And then he would venture past the veil. And he's the only person that could do this. It was just the high priest once a year. Because in that holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. That's where it was at. That's where the presence of Yahweh dwelt. This is where he would fellowship with his people. This is where the power of God was. And the people were left on the outside. It, the people who, who believed in this and, and the people who were drawing near and they were humbling themselves, they were on the outside, but they were dependent on the high priest to go in and do it. They're watching from the outside. They can't go in and do it. And they are so dependent on this guy, this high priest, because if he doesn't go in and he doesn't atone, they're not forgiven and their sins aren't forgiven either. Can you imagine just sitting there watching? Like, I, I, I'm dependent on this person. And he, the high priest goes in behind the veil. And he's there with the Ark of the Covenant. The throne of God. The glory of God. This is where the presence of Yahweh dwelt. And we know that the angel's wings would touch. And then if there would be a lid and inside the ark, there were the Ten Commandments, the tablets there. We also had the manna, piece of manna. And we also had the Aaron's rod that budded. All pointed to Christ as well. Aaron was the priest, talking about the priestly role of Christ. The Ten Commandments is the law of God, what he demands perfection of. And the manna is he's the bread of heaven, bread of life. And this blood that is warm, this blood from this goat, the high priest takes and he begins to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. I want you to picture that. Sprinkling it on the top of this ark. The cherubim's wings coming up and the flat part of the ark, the mercy seat, the blood of this goat is being sprinkled on it the, for, for the propitiation of sins of the people, for the forgiveness of those sins, for the atonement of those sins. And if you can get this picture that, that, that the, what the law required was absolute perfection, inside that ark is the Ten Commandments. It's the perfection of God. It's what you have to have to enter heaven on your own merit. Now you have the presence of Yahweh. You have the perfection of His law of what you must maintain if you want to maintain it on your own righteousness and no one can. So what is the only thing that is covering the perfect righteous requirement of God and His law and His divine presence? There's only one thing that's separating those two. It's the blood on the mercy seat. It's the blood of the goat. It's the blood of that animal that has been sprinkled on that mercy seat to make atonement for the people. Their sins are not forgiven if that blood is not sprinkled. What's even crazier to think about is that in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, where he says that Jesus was made to be a propitiation on the cross. That word, propitiation, if you go back in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible, of the Old Testament, 
if you go back to where that word propitiation, I think it's hilasterion or something along that line. I don't know if I'm going to say it correctly. But if you look at that word, that word also traces. It's hilateron, hilaterion or something along that lines. And that word that describes Christ being the propitiation or the atonement for our sins goes all the way back to Exodus 25. And in verse 22, when it's referencing the mercy seat. So you find the sense that Christ is the mercy seat where the blood was shed to make atonement for his people. You know, we see this idea of sprinkling of the blood in multiple places in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1 through 3, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, and listen to this, and be sprinkled with His blood. You see, that's what He does to the believer. He's made atonement for the believer. Christ, the true mercy seat, the atonement of sin. We see this in Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 15. It says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than any of the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. You know what that's a call to? You just heard the mystery of the gospel. The nations represents the Gentiles as well. Do you see what's going on here? That this goat is not just a goat. This is pointing to the work of Christ on the cross. That He would be the true sacrifice that would be slaughtered, slain on that day, crucified that day. And it would be by that blood that He would go into the true tabernacle and make atonement for our sins and sprinkle all His believers so their sins would be taken away and their sins would be atoned for. What a picture this is. Can you imagine being on the outside that day? And your forgiveness hinges on the work of the high priest that day. Well, let me tell you this. Your forgiveness hinges on the work of the true high priest. And let me give you the good news. He went into a more perfect tabernacle. He didn't have to cleanse himself. He willingly laid down his life. He was the true mercy seat. And if you're on the outside thinking, oh, I don't know. Am I forgiven? How do I know? You trust the work of the high priest. And if he went on on your behalf, then he didn't fail. He made complete atonement for your sins. And this high priest doesn't fail. What a picture this is. Now, can you imagine the high priest that day? He would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of this goat and it would be for the forgiveness and the atonement, the propitiation for the sins of those who drew near that day. But guess what would happen? The 10th day of the seventh month would roll around the next year. And you know what he'd have to go do? The same thing. 
they'd have to do the whole same thing again. They'd have to take the goat. They'd have to take him from the, the congregation of the sons of Israel. He'd have to, he would have to take off the garments of glory, the high priestly garments. He would have to humble himself and put on the linen tunics because he had a work to do. They would have to take the one goat. They'd have to kill the one goat. And here he, did, he would go, just like he did the previous year. He would take the goat's blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And I wonder if his mind was thinking, I was just here last year. Why are we back? We did this last year. It was supposed to atone for the sins of the people, but here I am again. Maybe it was his 20th time. Maybe it was his... Can you imagine? 25 times this year after year, this high priest continues to go and to continue to offer the blood sacrifice, sprinkle it on the mercy seat so he, him and the sins of the people could be forgiven. I wonder if there was ever a point in his, 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 his doing this where he was like, what is this all about? What is this pointing to? Why do I keep coming in here and doing the same thing if this is supposed to take away the sins of the people? Because it was a type. And it was a shadow. And the fulfillment's in Christ. And we're going to read this in a little bit. But Jesus went in to the Holy of Holies as our high priest to offer his blood, not year after year, but one time. Because the blood of those goats could never take away their sin. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Don't look back. Don't look back to those sacrifices. If they worked, you wouldn't have to keep coming back here every year. They were pointing to the true sacrifice, the true high priest. And here, rest assured, this sinless, perfect, pure high priest goes in and offers himself as the perfect sacrifice, once for all. And that term all in the Greek does not mean for every one. That is a temporal use of that word, meaning all time. It's done. He doesn't have to go back. He doesn't have to keep offering himself because it's this one sacrifice that does it all. It's that sacrifice that covers your sin. It's that sacrifice that perfects those who are being sanctified by his work. You know, one of the things that we always talk about is this. Is that there was never a seat. We've, we've heard this, but there was never a seat in that place that the high priest could sit down in. In the tabernacle, there wasn't a seat. And in the temple, there was never a seat because it, their work was never done. Hey, you, you've offered this this year. I'll see you next year. You've done it this time. It's, it's, it's made propitiation for this current time. I'll see you next year. It was a symbolic thing to say that the, the high priest's job was never done. It was never done. But what's interesting, we'll read it again here at the very end. But it says when Christ, the true high priest, the true intercessor, the one who would stand on behalf of his people, that's what the high priest does. He intercedes for his people. And it says when he interceded for his people, you know what he did? He sat down. That's when <laughs> I love that verse. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, it says after he's offered this one-time sacrifice, the high priest in the Old Testament, they couldn't sit down because their job was never done. It says he sat down. Almost like the words of the cross to tell us die. You know what he's saying? It's done. It's over. How many times have you or how many times do you know people right now that look at the cross as this weak thing? We sometimes look at the cross and say, oh, he's doing his best to try to save everyone and he just can't do it. He's trying and he's saying, oh, please. And it's, he's weak and you know, he's, he's offered this propitiation, and, but it's not going to work for everybody. Are you kidding me? The cross of Christ was never a weak thing. It was never a thing to be up in our, a question. It was from the foundation of the world that he would be there. It accomplished everything that it was supposed to accomplish. It didn't make it a possibility. It made it a reality. That those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world... That's who he came to die for. The one in John 6 that the Father gives to the Son. Those who he goes to die for. He died for the church. He died for his people. That's why he can say it's finished. It's over. For us to say that the wrath of God. Think about this. Because if he died for the sin of every human being, then the wrath of God would be satisfied that day. That's what propitiation is. The wrath of God is it's ceased. It's over. It's been appeased. It's been satisfied. And if Christ dies for every single human being, then the wrath of God has been satisfied that day on the cross. And why are people spending eternity in hell? That's double wrath. That can't be. The work of the cross saved everyone it was intended to save. The work of the cross was power. The work of the cross was success. The work of the cross was the work of the high priest who come to offer this once and all sacrifice. And then he sat down. See, that's, the, that's what the one goat is for. It had to be killed and the blood had to be shed so that the blood could be sprinkled on the mercy seat and the sin and the wrath of God could be atoned for. You see the picture of that? That's the propitiation. That's the vertical of the cross. It is the wrath of God being satisfied. It is the forgiveness of sins from, from the Father down to these sins by the blood of this sacrifice. And this was to be repeated every year because it could never take it away. That's the propitiation. And there's verses that tell us that he's the propitiation for our, the sin of the, of the people of his in 1 John 2.2 and Hebrews 2.17. You can read those later. We also see that the second goat was one of expiation. But before I do that, I just want to draw your attention to verse 15 of Leviticus 16. This really gives us the picture of the propitiation. It says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgression in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, this is important, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. This is the work of one and one alone. It's the work of Christ. No one else could do this. It was the job of the high priest in the Old Testament. No one else could go in. And it was only Christ who could fulfill this by himself. 
So after he would do that in propitiation to make atonement for the sins of the people who had gathered there with a humble and repentant heart, they set their sights on the second goat. This is the goat that is going to be used in the term that we call expiation. You may have heard this term scapegoat. We hear this a lot in our modern terms that scapegoat is one who takes the blame or he gets the, gets the blame for something they didn't do. They're a scapegoat. I'll take it and put it on me. And that's the same definition, same thought process here that's going on with this term. But uh, expiation has the prefix ex, which means out or from. Uh, that's where we get ex in the helo nihil fit. Ex is out of. So we see that it's out of or, or being carried away from is the thought here. And that's what this goat is going to represent. And we find this in verse 21. It says, Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard of their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. And we'll stop there. Now, I want you to think about this scene. One goat has been killed. The blood has been taken into the most sacred place, the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, sprinkled on the mercy seat for forgiveness, for atonement of sin. That would point to the work of Christ on the cross. That's the propitiation. Now we come to this. So they would take this goat for being the scapegoat or expiation, and the high priest would then take his hands, and he would lay his hands on this goat, and he would confess the sins of Israel, or the sons of Israel there on this goat. And then after he would confess the sins on this goat, then the goat would be released and the goat would run outside of the city, outside of the camp there. He's taking it out. He's taking the sins away from him. You see, this is the horizontal beam of the cross. This is what he's done for us. Not only has he on the cross bled and died, the true high priest whose blood was the true atonement and propitiation for our sin. Not only did he satisfy the wrath of the Father, that's what it says in Romans 5, 9, it, by his blood that it, we've been justified and, and we have escaped the wrath of God. It, it, the, it, God has, his wrath has been appeased by the work of the high priest, his son on the cross. Our sins have been covered, they've been atoned for by this one sacrifice. He took that on us, on himself for us. But that's not all he did. He took your sin away. That's what this is referring to. Confess the sin. One goat has already been killed. The blood has been applied for the forgiveness. And this symbolically is he's laying the sins of the people on this goat. And then it's released away. You see, not only has he paid the price for your sin, not only have your sin been atoned for, it doesn't linger around. It's been removed. And just in case you want to know how far it's been taken away and how far it's been removed, you can go to Psalm 103 and find out the answer to that in verse 12. He tells us as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do we ever stop and think about that? And he's taken it away. And not only has he atoned for it on the cross, he's taken it away. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. You see, we can't look at this 
chapter, again, we can't look at these two goats and say, well, they're just old, the goats in the Old Testament. No, no, no. I want you to, when you think about these goats, I want you to think about the, the body of Christ on the first goat that's being sacrificed and his blood is being run down. It's being just shed. It would be the blood of Christ that would be shed, sprinkled on the mercy seat to atone for us. That's the picture. We're on the outside. We're on the outside, depending on this high priest and the work. He doesn't fail. He never has. He never will. His one and all sacrifice was perfect. He sat down. But then I want you to think about that goat. And just think about you, the moment that he saved you. I want you to think about that goat just running as fast as he can away. That's what he did to your sin. He's removed it from you. As far as the east is from the west. Do you see this picture? How beautiful this is. This is why it's such a solemn day. It's a day of utmost reverence. But do you see that in the cross now? The vertical beam is the propitiation, the wrath of God being satisfied, the atonement of sin. That's the, that's the wrath down from the Father being appeased. And then the horizontal is his sin, our sins being removed as far as the east is from the west. It's really a beautiful picture. But it doesn't stop there. It says this. After the high priest was done with the first goat, and after this scapegoat had been released, something happens. I told you this was going to be one of your favorite parts, and you want to see the true picture of this. We talked about how he, the high priest would take off his garments of beauty and glory to come and do the work. And how the sacrifice has been made, the propitiation has been made, the expiation has been made. And something strange happens. Look what it says in verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place. And he shall leave them there. Do you see it? I think about the day of the resurrection. The true high priest came. He was the propitiation for our sins. It's over. It's complete. He purchased his people. And then he satisfied the wrath of the Father so we won't have to incur it. And how is this possible? Not because of anything we've done. By mercy and grace alone. And then he takes those sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west. He's done this in the humility of the clothing of a human being. He put on the humility to do this work. But then the work was over. And as soon as that happened, what did he do? He took off those garments and he put on his regular garments made for beauty and made for glory. How was he raised? He was raised in a glorified body. He was raised in all splendor. The work was over. He could lay those clothes aside. He left them in the grave, didn't he? 
Can you imagine that this high priest in the Old Testament is like, I got to leave my clothes here. What am, what's going on? What is this pointing to? Oh, if he could just look ahead. He would come to that day where Mary would look into the tomb. I mean, I know you like this. But just in the Old Testament as the Ark of the Covenant had the two angels on each side. And the mercy seat is where the blood was applied. Make no mistake about it, that's what Mary saw when she peeked in the grave that day. Because here's this flat place where the body of Christ lay, the true mercy seat. And you know what's on one end? is one angel. And what's on the other end? Another angel. And what's in between that angel, those two angels, was the body of the true mercy seat, of the true propitiation. That when Mary looked in, she was seeing the ark, the mercy seat, the glory of God. All that was pointing to Christ in the Old Testament, and now it's a reality in front of her face. But do you know what else she saw in there? The clothes that the high priest left. Why'd he leave them? Because the work was done. Put on the form of a man to do what we could not do. We couldn't complete, we couldn't fulfill the law of God. That's what Romans 8 says. We could not do it. So God, coming in the, in the likeness of flesh, did what we couldn't do, met the full righteous requirement of the law so that that could be imputed to us. He did that for you. If you're his children, he did that for me. He offered his body, propitiation. He took the sins away, expiation. And then he left the clothes. The high priest would put on his garments of glory and splendor. And oh, what glory and splendor the Son of God put on when he was raised from the dead. I told you that was going to be my, that's my favorite part of the whole thing. Make no mistake about it. There's, these are not just coincidences stuffed into the Old Testament. He took off the garments of glory for a reason. He did what he had to do for a reason. He left those garments there and he put on his garments of glory and beauty for a reason. It's pointing to the work of Christ. After that, there was, they would then come and they would offer up a smoke, uh, in the smoke, the fat or the sin offering on the altar, and then there would be the one who released the scapegoat would have to wash uh, his clothes and, and, and bathe in water. And then something peculiar happened in verse 27. It says, but the blood of the sin offering, uh, but the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin. I'm excuse, I think I read that wrong. It says, but the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh and their refuse in fire. Now, you see that they would take this body and they would carry it outside the camp. The dead carcass they would take and they would carry it outside to the camp. We have a reference to this in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. It's on your sheet there. It said, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. You want further proof that this is pointing to Christ? Here it is. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go outside, out to him 
outside the camp, bearing his reproach. It's pointing to Christ, that he was sacrificed outside the the gates there of Jerusalem. He was taken outside the city on the hill of Golgotha to be sacrificed. And, And you see that reference there when it comes to verse 27 of Leviticus 16. And it says in verse 29 on, it says this is to be a, a constant statute in your mind uh, for you and you're to observe it the seventh month, the tenth day, not to do any work. And that's important too because we enter a Sabbath rest for God, those who are His believers, ceasing from our works towards righteousness as our merit, um, but trusting in the work of Christ. It says, it says, for it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls in a permit statute. And what you'll see up in verse 29 is that it says, whether the native or the alien or so, who sojourns among you, that is not just to the Jew. It's reference to the Gentile as well. There's a, a mystery of the gospel there. Really quickly, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. If you want to get a deeper understanding of this, go read chapters 9 and 10. I just want to hit on a couple verses here before we close. Actually, if you want to start in Hebrews 7, I just want to draw your attention to a few things. Again, the book of Hebrews is pointing back to the old covenant, to the old priesthood. And comparing that with the new covenant and saying, listen, don't go back. Don't put your forgiveness in bulls and goats and earthly men. Don't do it. I'm going to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 7. And we will pick up in verse 21. It says, For they indeed become priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's talking about Melchizedek, Psalm 110. It says, So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. What he's saying is, listen, when you died, someone else took your place. That's why the the high priest in the Old Testament, there there were more than one because they died. Oh, but look at verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Now, this is important. Remember what Romans 8 says? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You know what the answer to that is? Nobody. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Who bring a charge against you? Who in the world can come and bring a charge when the sovereign ruler of this universe says, they're righteous. I'm interceding for them. I'm justifying them. No one could ever bring a charge. And what's amazing is this. For a true believer to ever lose their salvation, it can't happen, by the way. Here's what would have to happen. That Jesus would have to die. The being of God would have to die. Because as long as He lives, He's interceding for His elect. 
Now, how long does he live? Forever. So how long will he intercede for you? Forever. How? Can someone explain this to me? Maybe you can't. I, I, listen, I believed this for a long time. How in the world can God himself be justifying you every single second of the day? And you not enter heaven? Romans 8 goes on to say that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Why? Because we're his people. He purchased us on the cross. That's what being redeemed is. The price was paid. You get something in return. Not, I'm paying for everybody. Oh, I didn't get some. That's not how it works. You ever stop and think that as the Old Testament, the high priest would go in and intercede once a year, completely dependent on this priest? Have you ever thought that God intercedes for his people forever? You have a bad day? You really blow it? He's still interceding for you. You don't feel like he's anywhere near you? He's interceding for you. The world brings a charge. The enemy brings a charge against you. You just got to know that this high priest is interceding for you. And he's going to do that until he dies. He doesn't die. So therefore, he lives forever. And look at what the result of that is. Because he lives permanently in verse 25, therefore, as a result of what we just read, he is able to save for just a little bit of time until your faith wanes and then you lose it. No, 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 no. He's able. He. You'll see who the action of this is. He is able to save you forever. For those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives. Think about this. He always lives to intercede for his people. That's why Paul busts into doxology in Romans 8 and says, what can we say to this? How can we even put this into words? For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appointed a son made perfect forever. What an amazing verse there. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Really quickly, if you'll turn in verse uh, or to chapter 9 of Hebrews, it's all good, but I want you to start in verse 11 with me. It says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. See, you can't understand this until you understand Leviticus 16. It doesn't make any sense. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. He didn't enter a physical tabernacle. He, didn't, he went to the heavenly tabernacle. And not through the blood of goats. You just heard about all those goats. And calves. Those things don't do it. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. Stop just for a second. If you, I, you have to catch this. What happened as a result of him going into that holy place? Did it leave something up for uncertainty or was it all certainty? Listen to what happens. Having obtained eternal redemption. 
You see what just happened? Not, oh, possibly, maybe some will not come to me, maybe some will not, quote-unquote, accept me in their heart. That's not what it says. This high priest went in and did a job. And when he went into this holy place, do you know what he did? He accomplished his mission. He obtained eternal salvation for his people. He did it. It's a guarantee. It's certain. That's the beautiful certainty of his work. You see, it's these little things that we have to take and hold to our hearts. He's obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason He's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been... Wait a minute. No, 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 that can't be. I don't know what version you're in right now. But mine says called. Some will tell us that he calls everyone equally. And that you can tell God no if he really wants you to be in heaven, and you can just say, I'll pass on that. I know that's what you really want, and it's your universe, but no thanks. But there's a problem. Do you remember that old pesky golden chain of redemption? Those whom he foreknew, he what? He predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And if he calls everyone equally then everyone's in heaven because, guess what? Those whom He calls, He justifies. Does God justify everybody? Then He can't call everybody the same. But He calls His sheep. He calls His people. And those whom He's justified, He's glorified. And now we hear this. Listen to this. He's attained eternal redemption by the work on the cross. And he says that those whom have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. You see, if everybody's called, then everybody has received the eternal inheritance. You see, that's why it says in Revelation 17, 14, that with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. All by the work of Christ. He goes on to tell us that he, a little bit farther down at, at the temple, the tabernacle, they were copies of the things, but Christ entered into heaven to appear in the presence of God for us. Who's the us? It's the elect there. He's presenting himself on our behalf. Okay, really quickly, we're going to finish in Hebrews 10. It says in verse 1, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, see, not the reality, just the shadow, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, have, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers had once been cleansed would no longer have been, had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It it is written of me to do your will, O God. Here's where it picks up. After saying above sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Talking about covenants here. But this will, we have been sanctified. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And I told you that every priest would stand. And here's these verses that Jesus said. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The power of God, the work of the high priest, it's over. The work is over. The Old Testament pointing to the work of the cross. I I want us to begin to grasp what occurred on the cross. It was purposeful. It was personal. It was intimate. It purchased. It redeemed. It was the propitiation for the sin of His people. He obtained uh, salvation for us. He took the wrath of the Father. He took our sin away. That's what this day of atonement is pointing to, and the greatest fulfillment is in Christ. And I'll leave you with one verse. It's in verse 3 of chapter 10. Of Hebrews, it says, But in those sacrifices, there were a reminder of sins year by year. You see, in those sacrifices, they would come back every year and it would be a reminder of their sin. It would be a reminder of their failings. It would be a reminder that this blood couldn't take it away. And this word reminder is the Greek word that is anonymous, something along that lines. It's close, it's on your sheet. And do you know where this word is picked up to mean the same thing? It's in regard to the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've heard it. Do this in remembrance of me. In the Old Covenant, this Day of Atonement and these sacrifices were to remind the people of their sin. But in the new covenant, he says, I don't want you to have all your attention on that. Because when you take the Lord's Supper and you think about his body being broken, the propitiation and him taking your sin away, the expiation and the blood that is running down the atonement there. When you think about that, you're to do that in remembrance of me. You see, the old covenant was a reminder of the sin. But this is telling us to be remindful 
of the sin bearer. You see the difference? When you do this, when you take communion, when you think about my body and you think about my blood, that same word that was used to be a reminder of their sin in the old covenant day after day and year after year, he says, now I want you to remember the sin bearer because it is the work of the high priest that makes you stand accepted in the eyes of God. It's not you. It's not you. It's not me. Remember the sin bearer. Remember the high priest. Remember his body. Remember his blood. Remember that he sat down. And that's the only hope that we have. Do you remember the sin bear? He bore your sin on the cross. His blood was shed to redeem you. You see, this is what the Day of Atonement is about. It's pointing to Christ. And yes, He's separated us. He's taken our sin away. And the power of sin is, he's, he, he's, we are dead to sin and the power that the, the hold it has on us. But we're still not fully uh, removed from the presence of sin. But on the last day, He will come. And remember, those who didn't humble themselves and those whom the blood wasn't applied to, they'll cut off from the people. And on that final day, the one who started our salvation, the one who purchased us, the one who intercedes for us, will come. And we won't have the wrath of the others, but we will have the mercy of God. And because He's interceding for us, we will enter the new heaven and new earth completely removed from the presence of sin. How will you be in heaven? Because of you? Or because of the sin bearer? Because of the high priest? When you do this, when you think about him, do it in remembrance of him. All the glory goes to God. And just like them, we're dependent on the high priest. And if he has saved your soul, you can lay your head down tonight with full confidence in this high priest. He's done the work perfectly. He's put on his garments of glory, splendor. He's running the universe. And right now, if you could just peel back heaven, you would see him interceding for you. And he'll do that forever and ever. Just like in the Passover, the people in the house, they weren't worthy because of their own nature. It was They were worthy because of the, of the Passover lamb. And the reason that we are counted worthy is because of the atonement of our high priest. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Why? These are things that are just a mere shadow of what is to come. But the shadow has come. The, sh the shadow has passed and the substance has come. And all the glory goes to Him. I hope that we could agree on two things. I ask this every time. I hope that we, three things now, I hope that we can love Hebrews and love Leviticus a little bit more and understand the need of it. But I hope you can agree with me that the Bible is better. I hope we've made it. 
And when you open your Bible to the book of Leviticus chapter 16, or in Leviticus 23 and you hear about these feasts, I hope that you could agree with me that there's more to the story.